Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody, to the Docs Who Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nedelski. I got my co-host, Dr. Carl, here. And we just got back a week ago, or a little bit less than a week ago, from San Diego, my old old stomping ground where we attended and even spoke at the, uh, uh, the yearly or annual uh, obesity Society's conference on obesity called Obesity Week. And we wanted to go over just a few little things, little updates that are going on in the obesity medicine and science world. So uh, I think to start things off, first of all, I talk, I spoke about the idea of resistance training. It was a debate, actually, kind of a debate, although it was more of a fun discussion, I, I think. The, the yeah. debate was uh, resistance training versus aerobic training for the management of obesity or long-term fat loss. And the gist of my argument, and we may have my um, opponent on here sometime to talk about, actually, yeah. I actually had to, I, I had to go against one of the, the most renowned uh, uh, exercise obesity researchers out there. His name's John Jakisic. He's at the University of Kansas now, I believe. Yeah, he used to but be the, in Pittsburgh. But he he's he's the one that spoke and taught at uh, our obesity review medicine review courses on exercise and weight loss and the management of obesity. So um, he took the side of aerobic training. I don't think he really had a ch- choice. I, I signed up for the resistance training. They asked me to do it, and nobody signed up. Um, for the other side. And they said, Hey, man, you, you got to do this because nobody signed up. So he did it anyway. It was funny because he's kind of, um, he's one of my idols when it comes to exercise and weight loss and research. So the gist of my, um, the gist of my argument was that, uh, exercise doesn't really help that much for weight loss that, that we see acutely anyway, maintenance, um, when it comes to exercise is, pretty important and it looks like the data is strong there just for when you're looking at the acute weight loss phase where people are starting to lose weight as opposed to trying to keep it off it doesn't look like exercise adds that much more to diet you know diet somewhere on around five percent on average I mean, by the way yeah so so average Everyone's different diet gets around somewhere around four to six percent with a good intensive um therapy four to six percent total body weight Exercise may add a percent or two to that. And over time, that starts kind of uh, decreasing. You know, you, most people, we don't have great data over very long periods of time. We have the look ahead trial, which we've talked about before. We have diabetes prevention and some of these other um, long term studies. But when you look at exercise, it doesn't really add much. And now I gave him a little tidbit, though. When you look at his study, he actually has, he's done these studies. When you look at those who do the absolute most, meaning 200 minutes per week uh, on average, those people do tend to do a lot better than those who do like fewer than 150 minutes per week. But what happens over a long period of time, it's really hard to maintain that. So the arg- my argument was like, hey, there's a ton of volume that you need for aerobic training to make it effective for long-term weight loss. 
and, and keeping it off because that's the reason you do it, not necessarily that acute uh, weight loss phase. It's really hard to get that much volume. We all have, you know, whatever, family, jobs, it, what, just life in general. Um, again, if you can do it, that's great. But my argument was that resistance training, which head-to-head against aerobic training, it, it does worse in terms of fat loss. It just does because that's the amount of energy you're burning. You just can't burn that much due to the volume and that you're doing of exercise and physical activity. The argument was that it's just so much better at um, retaining uh, muscle mass or lean tissue, not only just muscle but bone specifically if you're doing uh Hack squats, front squats. That's an inside joke with me and my brother. But if you're doing, if if you're holding onto your bone as you lose weight, which is very important, especially in the elderly, we had our osteoporosis lecture uh, or uh, podcast. Um, if you didn't, haven't le- heard that one, go listen to that. But resistance training is so powerful compared to aerobic training, and we have these newer therapies so good that are so powerful for weight loss that, like, hey, since we're not going to add any more weight loss with these other with aerobic training, why don't we just focus on at least a uh, minimal effective dose of physical activity in terms of just retaining lean mass? So anyway, I think I was the people's champ, but in the end, I don't have <laughs> a ton of data supporting it. It's it's more of a conceptual, hypothetical type of thing. So that was just of my uh, debate. Anything, any other little tidbits? Yeah. Well, yeah, first of all, I mean, you guys both did a, a great job presenting your sides. Um, I mean, he obviously made the argument that if we're going to really, really choose one or the other, which in reality we don't want to do and we want to personalize therapy, that technically aerobic training does do better for weight, in air quotes, loss than resistance training head to head. But that also doesn't take into account the different types of resistance training that can include a little bit higher volume, you know, circuit training, that sort of thing. Um, and and he did make a point, though, with a lot of aerobic training that it is actually any exercise is good for muscle retention, lean mass retention when we're losing weight through diet. So, so he did make that point um, to kind of counter the, you know, resistance training, how important we obviously feel it is for uh, lean mass retention during weight loss with diet and, and these new medications. Yeah, any activity is um, better than none. But also, I think you guys both did a good job of saying, while the debate was supposed to be a fun discussion on weight loss, per se, that when we treat obesity, obesity is the disease of excess and abnormally distributed adipose tissue that causes harm to our health. And exercise is medicine for you. So we always tell people that when we're working on treating their obesity, that the exercise we're prescribing is for what's on the inside that counts. It's for the health of them. It's treating obesity, but not necessarily their weight. And then, um, and so that's an important point. I think you guys both touched on, uh, even though that wasn't exactly the debate, um, but I think it's maybe the most important. And it actually sort of, uh, I think kind of fits in with your argument in that when we're using these medications and surgeries, by the way, where there's a lot of evidence for exercise, um, retaining lean muscle and and, and improving the weight actually, um, that, that, probably you get more bang for the buck if you focus on the resistance training because we want to retain the muscle. Muscle's healthy. Muscle's good for people. We want to help bone health and and resistance training. I'd still would say the, wins the debate for you. And 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 I actually wrote a, an article for Doximity about this. Um, we'll see if they publish it. <laughs> but um, I did ultimately say 
um, that my bias towards you as my brother and, and weight training uh, probably makes me, uh, you know, a little on that side and uh, that you won the debate. But um, yeah, I mean, also, this podcast is called Docs Who Lift. I know. So, <laughs> you know, we, we have a pretty strong bias, literally. But um, but also, you know, going back to the whole weight loss on average, all the studies basically say the exercise interventions that are done, you get the one to two percent weight loss on average. But the, the reason we keep talking and harping on the average is because everyone's so different. That's why those things called the waterfall plots, where you see the response of each person are really interesting because some people gain weight, hopefully muscle, some, all the way down to people who have no change in weight to, to those who really do lose a lot of weight. Um, hopefully most people have some improvement in body composition and we know that it's healthy for everyone, no matter what it is. But um, going back to the obesity as a disease, everyone has different compensatory mechanisms. So some people end up just taking in more energy than what they're burning because if they're not controlling for it. And so that's, there's just a lot of individual variability with exercise for weight loss per se, but weight isn't what we really care about. It's what's on the inside that counts. It's the clinical benefits. Um, and, and yeah, we think resistance training takes a hint of a priority over aerobic training, but there are a lot of health benefits with all of it. It's yeah. Ideally you do, you know, what you can do. Yeah. Some sort of mix, if possible. Optimally, yeah. you would do a mix. But yeah. whatever you're going to be able to do, just do that. At and, least. you know, another point that you guys both uh, sort of debated a little bit was the non-exercise physical activity. So he was often, at, you know, kind of hinting at trying to use some of the data for very yeah. light exercise, like Which walking. Walking um, leisurely is not aerobic exercise. Right. So, that, so that was your argument. That back. was my, I was like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> but... But, but in the end, ultimately, you know, you both talked about how being as physically active all the time, even yeah. if it's not exercise, is important. So, Correct. You know, so good things from both sides. I thought you guys both did a great job. You were entertaining as always. So if anybody yeah. wants to pay to watch it or listen to it, it would be worth their the, time. The I people's, I call myself the people's champ because I didn't have the yeah. data, but I was definitely... <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, you some data, some data, but it, it wasn't exactly for the winning that specific debate. Right, question, right, right. What the, what the hell? We are, we are, you know, we we are potentially collecting some data in the future that might answer some of these yeah. questions. But that's all we're going to say about that. So there were some other things. They're, you know, they're looking to the future, and we're really we we love the cutting edge um, potential therapies for. Uh, weight loss. And so we've talked about the GLP-1 medicines with semaglutide. We've talked about the combo uh, GLP slash GIP in, in terms of terzepatide. But there are new medications that some of these trialists that are that are studying these, um, which we may actually have on, on the podcast at some point, talking about these newer combinations that are they're going to be even better. They're going to be better than uh, semaglutide, terzepatide. It's going to get to a point where we're hitting um, bariatric surgery uh, type results. Uh, again, which costs. We, really, we already are with semaglutide and terzepatide. Yeah, yeah, we are and, for uh, for for individuals. Yes, um, on average, you know, again, you know, we're hitting a twenty percent. We just, it's it's just amazing. I've never seen anything like this um now that i'm using a lot of terzepatide especially but um some of these newer combos i think that's worth uh discussing they're going to start having these uh th th even glucagon even there's some that are like it, the, the mechanisms start getting yeah. really weird because then it, they start blocking some of them yeah 
It may there's antagonists, agonists, yeah. all sorts of stuff. There's one that we've talked about before where they have a, uh, they add some maglutide with this amylin uh, agonist called cagrillantide, another uh, hormone that comes from your, your pancreas. Um, amazing weight loss there where I think we're going to see all sorts of pretty cool stuff yeah. and, and and other companies are, are starting to jump in as well yeah. which is nice because competition yeah should hopefully bring... hopefully that helps bring costs down and availability as we go forward so yeah, otherwise i'm gonna be i'm gonna personally bankrupt this country by prescribing all of it to everybody <laughs> yeah and that's I, that's that's the truth I, <laughs> I haven't hey here's here's the other thing so um you know, we, we don't take money from big pharma. Not yet. Again, I, I don't Not know yet. if I will. I don't know if we will, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we get, we get lots of offers to, to potentially shill out for some of these, uh, um, companies and, you know, we're not, we're not sure if we're, we're going to or not. We don't know if it would, um, I don't know if it would make a difference or not of what people think if we're, we, we, we just believe heavily in these new therapies and we just think, uh, I just, I, I, I love well, them. They're they're, they're scientifically sound. They have great benefits and, and great safety profiles. And yeah, so they are. It's a great. They're, 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 good, they're, good they're changing people's lives. I mean, just yeah. straight I just, up. Yeah. I, I don't know if you had clinic today. I just got done with um, my morning clinic and followed up on a fair amount of people with obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and several of them are on one of these approved uh, medications, whether it's semaglutide or trisepatide um, for right now. And, and, and I, no fewer than two of them said something along the lines of this has changed my life yeah um for the better and it's, it's quite and it's incredible outstanding. you know during the, the the obesity week they did publish the uh, semaglutide trial in adolescence yeah that's which, big news that is a big news because it is pediatric obesity is extremely difficult now we can talk about some of the very rare not very rare but the rare genetic syndromes that we do have uh some medicine for that we, we can talk about but but for most people you know uh when it's that polygenic or the usual obesity it's a, it's difficult and now we have phenamine topiramate that's approved it's been studied with some benefit and approved for for um, adolescents and then but semaglutide in teens I mean, it was really good outcomes. Yeah. And so th this is kind of a, that's a game changer for um, adolescent obesity, at least. Yeah. So those for those who are listening, have parents, you know, parents with kids who are struggling with their weight um, might be an option to discuss. Um, we don't do it at in telemedicine just yet uh, in my program, but, um, you know, you may, may be able to discuss with your physician. They may not feel comfortable doing it. So um, there, there are physicians on abom.org that may be uh, of use mm -hmm. uh, in your area. So check that out. What else? Oh, there's a there's some interesting mouse mice studies on terzepatide, which are kind of yeah. interesting, you know, potentially showing increased energy expenditure. A hint. You know, my uh, my guess is that it's not going to pan out in humans, but what I do think, and I see anecdotally, is that people lose weight rapidly, and then they said, "I'm I'm moving more," and I think yeah. probably because they feel better to move. That's what mm -hmm. I that's what I'm guessing. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a and that may be uh, the most important part of it too. I mean, if there, you know, maybe there's a hint of improved metabolism. So when we start talking about you know, working in the air, the hypothalamus that controls our appetite and metabolism, uh, et cetera, you know, maybe doing the right stuff up there does help 
some of the metabolic rate a little bit. But I, yeah, it's hard to say that it can be uh, really, really relevant. But if there's any little bit, that's kind of nice as long as there's no adverse effects. Um, yeah. But if it's helping people be more physically active, we were just talking about non-exercise physical activity. And when people lose weight and if they feel well doing it, as opposed to just starving themselves, not having the medical support, um, and they start increasing that non-exercise activity, well, that that makes up a really good amount of the energy expenditure. You know, you you, you had that um, in your talk, yeah. you had that, uh, I don't know, it was a co- kind of that column that shows the percentage yeah, of someone's it's, metabolic it's from, uh, Eric Trexler, uh, who we want to have on the podcast from uh, uh, Greg Nugget, the Stronger by Science guys, he actually wrote a paper and that was, I used it as a meme once and he's like, hey, that's that's from my paper. I'm like, my bad. I uh, I think I downloaded, I saw it on like uh, Google Images, but now I made sure to, to cite him in the actual, um, yeah, on in, that slide. But yeah, it shows the, the components of the total daily energy expenditure yeah. where you have your thermic effective of feeding, which is the energy you expend trying to digest food. You have um, exercise activity thermogenesis. So whenever you're doing purposeful exercise, that's the amount of energy you're burning during that. And then there's non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is pretty much any movement um, and, and energy you're burning that's not purposeful exercise or basal metabolic rate or, uh, or what you're burning um, while eating. And so then, of course, you have your basal metabolic rate. So, But what people don't understand is that they always concentrate on their basal metabolic rate as their metabolism going down when they lose weight. But a lot of it is actually non-exercise yeah. activity because they're not moving around as much. And right. it, can, it, can make a, it can make a big difference and people just don't realize it. It, it really makes the bigger the biggest difference. Yeah. I and mean, even mm-hmm. when you look at like, you know, some of Kevin Hall's The Biggest Loser trials and stuff like that and talk about the metabolic adaptation and, you know, the regains mostly from food intake. And it kind of gets into all that stuff where, um, you know, a lot of the compensation that happens in, in people is they end up not moving much. That's yeah, some well, of the so, problem. So that's why I made the other argument for resistance training, because that resistance training seems to conserve that the the best compared to aerobic training. Because mm-hmm. if you think about this, if you do high intensity or at least moderate intensity, and you're going for runs and bikes, you may feel tired to, you may not want to get off the couch and do whatever compared to like, oh, if you did resistance training, uh, you now aren't wiped for the rest of the day unless you just absolutely destroyed it in the gym and, and <laughs> did a, so many squats you can't even walk anymore. But like in general, resistance training does a better job at, at um, minimizing the decreases in uh, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So anyway, yeah. it, again, it's hypothetical. We have to show the outcomes. So we haven't yeah. uh, necessarily done that. So anyways, but yeah, going back to it, it, the trisepatide maybe showed a little bit of benefit for metabolism in addition to reducing the food intake in mice. If that translates to humans at all, that's a good thing. It may not really matter that much. Ultimately, Um, other other uh, public or uh, presentations on trisepatide um, were a lot of like uh, analyses of the big surmount one trial that uh, Dr. Yasserov presented at the ADA last year and published in New England Journal of Medicine. just little tidbits. Uh, they talked about how they, there are significant improvements in the health-related quality of life in these patients. So yeah, that's I can very, believe it. very important, obviously. Um, it didn't really matter what BMI category someone was in, whether their BMI was 50 or, or 27. They mm-hmm. had good um, overall you know, relative uh, weight loss and thus improved health outcomes from that. Um, so that was good. Um, 
And I think uh, when they went across age groups also, it, it showed benefit across like all age groups, very similar benefits. So those were some of the terzepatide nuggets, I think that came out of that. Yeah. I mean, anything else that's, nothing else was pretty, uh, was breaking. It's a lot of just cutting edge uh, OBC therapies. I mean, and, and continuing to study these um, current therapies yeah. that we have, but we're, we're going to kind of give it to you guys <laughs> who are listening, guys and gals, y'all, we're going to, we're going to be giving it to you as it comes in yeah. on a weekly basis. I, I thought there was, um, it was interesting, be, uh, you know, going back to the, the rare genetic disorders. Um, one, I got to, you, it was before you got there. I got to see um, Dr. Uh, Faruqi, who is the global leader in genetic causes of obesity. She's at Cambridge University um, overseas. And, and one, we need to get her on the podcast. She articulates genetic obesity so well. Um, obviously, I mean, she's the expert, but not everyone can articulate these things, right? Even if you're the expert and, and she does. So, you know, we talked about this medicine called set melanotide. That is a melanocortin-4 receptor agonist, and it skips over some of the very monogenic disorders that make these other things we're talking about not work well, you know, for, and so kids who have severe obesity when they're growing up, they may have some of these disorders. The trial that was published that I think is a big deal that used set melanotide was in those who have hypothalamic obesity. So hypothalamic obesity is when there has been damage to the hypothalamus, which is the area of the brain we keep talking about that is like the control center for so many of these things like energy intake, metabolism, sleep, <laughs> et cetera. And, um, and I think it's really important that this, this showed benefit in hypothalamic obesity because this has been a disorder um, that's very difficult to, uh, to, um, to treat. Uh, and it's and it's a real struggle. This can happen from brain tumors, um, something called craniopharyngiomas that require surgery. And when you damage that area of the brain, people have severe weight gain and, and obesity. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had actually a few patients asking about that medicine. You got to talk about like it, it hits, what is it, downstream or upstream? It's down, well, down, it, it's down, 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 downstream. So if we're, we're cause wow. GLP, GLP one can have an effect on the palm C, which then has an effect on MC four, whatever. It doesn't matter. Anyway, this is going further up, up, up the, up the road and, and hitting uh, the receptors that ultimately control appetite, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Only approved for certain um, syndromic or genetic causes, leptin uh, receptor, leptin deficiency, uh, palm C. Le yeah. Uh, leptin issues. receptor deficiency, not leptin. Yeah. Leptin deficiency. You have to use metroleptin, which is uh, uh, leptin receptor, way, yeah. millions of dollars, which is crazy, but um, leptin receptor deficiency, palm C uh, deficiency, PCSK1 deficiency, which is an enzyme that, that converts essentially the probial melanocortin, the POMC to the alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which goes then to the melanocortin four receptor, um, up in the higher areas. And that's where the, this set melanotide works because it skips over all that stuff, yeah. all the stuff that we usually talk about where there might be these disorders. Bardet vital syndrome has a problem. There. That one just got, I think that one just got added yeah. if I'm not uh, Yeah, just re recently added for the, um, after the trials came out this past year, um, it's approved for that too. I've had so. some people come to me with MC4 receptor uh, so, mutations. I'm not sure if that yeah. would, if it would work. Well, so what, so what Dr. Fruki said, because people asked about that. 
um, I, I'm sure all of our peop- listeners are really interested in this. <laughs> but well, um, but they may have it if they don't know. Yeah. So for what is <laughs> someone might have it. the thought is that for because because that's where it's working, right? So if the receptor, the melanocortin four receptor, is a problem, then melanotide may not work as well, obviously. But yeah. the the thoughts were that it might work well enough. Okay. Yes. That that's good maybe to know. there's some benefit. So I they're 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 studying it. It's it's literally being yeah, studied good. right now. Because they're so. they're they've literally had a few of those. I'm like, shoot. I'm like, I that's, don't know if it would work or not. That's interesting. Because that's I think that's a little bit more common than some of these other ones that it's actually mm-hmm. approved for. And yeah. so that that's difficult. Well, to I hope deal they with. do study so, it. Okay. Anyways, yeah. All right. I don't think there was much else that we needed to discuss. There was, you know, we went to some, one of our buddies, uh, Dr. Scott Kahan's lecture. He he had a lecture similar to yours and talking about, yeah. you know, beyond BMI. We've talked about this. Ketlet uh, Keys uh, created this uh, BMI, um, and, and he talks about the the history of it and uh, how it. it doesn't fit an individual very well. It does well on population level. And we, we always want to emphasize like yeah. BMI is just a screener. That's, that's it. Like yeah. you look at me, I have overweight sometime in, in the past I'd had obesity just based on BMI, but you know, most of it's muscle. Um, eh, you know, maybe when my abs are a little bit blurry, uh, <laughs> God. I might've had sleep apnea though. So I might've been able to yeah, that's convince true. Convince people. To, that was back in the day, though, when you were trying. My to be neck was, but my neck was huge. My neck's yeah, not nearly as big anymore. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, the point of it is, you know, if you if you don't get too hung up on BMI, BMI doesn't necessarily make a diagnosis. It it is a good screener to to say, hey, this person may have excess adiposity. Does this person have complications of it? And really, we should be staging the severity of obesity based upon complications of obesity or the risks of those complications. Um, you know, more of an individual clinical aspect as to do they even have excess adiposity um, and what are we going to do about it? And then and then also help us, you know, uh, guide our response to therapy. So, um, you know, forget BMI, but are we improving their diabetes, they're getting rid of prediabetes and getting rid of their sleep apnea, improving their fatty liver and, and their health related quality of life. And those are the things that really, uh, are our goals, not yep. just weight. So we got to get away from a weight centric, yep. uh, it's a little bit tougher. It takes, it takes some uh, effort from the clinician standpoint, but yeah. All right. I think that's about it. We, we this is uh diabetes awareness month that we've had our, um, podcasts on that. We also really want to get uh, a few lecturers, uh, podcaster people on talking about weightlifting more in children. We had our podcast going from cradle to, uh, to grave with uh, Dante Burks, which was great. But I want to, I kind of want to get into some of the research in lifting with kids and just keep spreading this idea of lifting as medicine. And maybe some of these obesity drug trialists will get on here soon. So yeah. Thanks for listening. Give us a review. Share with your friends. This podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities.